0: Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of the Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Prizman, and... I'm so delighted to be joined today by someone who I think really keeps me sane on Twitter. And I'm so glad to talk to him sort of in person. So Stephen W. Thrasher, PhD, holds the inaugural Daniel H. Renberg Chair at Northwestern University's Medill School, the first journalism professorship in the world created to focus on LGBTQ research. He's also a faculty member of Northwestern's Institute of Sex and Gender, sexual and gender minority health and well-being. A columnist for Scientific American, his writing has been widely published by the New York Times, Nation, the Atlantic, Journal of American History, and more. In 2019, Out Magazine named him one of the most influential and impactful people of the year. His first book is called The Viral Underclass. Welcome, Stephen.
1: Thanks so much, Maris. It's a pleasure to talk to you.
2: We were talking before I started recording about how um, you have written one of those books that unfortunately <laughs> um, will be more timely than ever for many, many years to come. And uh, to your publishing in this August is no exception.
1: Uh, thanks. I would love for nothing that my for my book to be irrelevant or to be in a world where it wasn't relevant, um, but my goal with the help of my editors and my agent when we conceived of the book was that it could potentially be applicable uh, for people in experiencing viruses and pandemics of a different nature, but where the underlying conditions were the same. Um, And so even though I started writing it in the beginning of the COVID pandemic, after having studied HIV and AIDS for a long time, and now we're entering into the monkeypox era, I hope some of the principles and experiences will be helpful for people as they cope and try to stay sane and care for the sick and mourn people who die. Yeah.
2: And I I think... You talk about a, a variety of social vectors that um, have created this this viral underclass, which is not a term you came up with, but, um, but, but that you use. Um, and I was thinking about how in, with monkeypox in particular, it seems like right now, we're really in the individualized shame part of the process when we're seeing um, arguments about whether or not to call monkeypox an STI.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of shame and embarrassment that is lobbed at almost all matters of health and particularly infectious disease to try to put the blame and responsibility on the people becoming infected or people blamed for doing the infecting. What I think that viruses really teach us is that we have interdependent connected lives at all time and we have to manage those and um, and deal with them with care for one another and for ourselves, but it's often just lobbed off onto individuals. We're seeing it very much, the, the messaging with COVID is very strong right now, that it's your responsibility to wear a mask or not. Even though the CDC sets policy, and they say it's the local government's responsibility. The local government say it's the CDC's responsibility. And the White House spokespeople say it's everyone individual responsibility when we really need to work together. Um, and you're right. We're very much in the shame stage of monkeypox because it is, as we speak, conditions can change. Yeah. But as we speak now, it's overwhelmingly in all reporting jurisdictions around the world um, affecting men who have sex with men. And, and there's a real amount of conflict about whether or not to call it an STI, I found it somewhat surprising because lots of other viruses I study are called STI's, even though they can be transmitted in other ways. Um, And so there's a a lot of fear right now. I think that gay men will be blamed, but equally, if not more importantly, I think we have to understand what's happening with transmission and get support and resources of the people who are being affected. And the social vectors that I write about in the book, I think are broadly applicable to all of these viruses, even though like the viruses themselves have very, very different qualities and modes of transmission, but um, the ways they move are remarkably similar because of social vectors.
2: Yeah. Um, And and so broadly, let's um, talk about what you mean by the viral underclass. Who are you talking about?
1: I'm talking about the kinds of people who are repeatedly affected by viruses and sometimes very different kinds of viruses and that the experience of being infected is then influencing their lives and often downgrading their economic mobility. Um, So, for example, I, in the book, am writing extensively about the criminalization of HIV, a virus that has long been lodged amongst uh, Black queer people, Black people, Uh, people who've been incarcerated in the United States and in St. Louis, where I do a lot of my research, um, I found that not only was it very prevalent in the the areas where I was actively seeking out talking to people about HIV, but also where Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, um, where you find instances of horrific police violence, you're also going to find concentrations of Black poverty, and then you're also going to find higher rates of not just a virus like HIV, but that it progresses on to the disease of AIDS. It's more likely to happen in these places. And initially the COVID maps were looking quite similar. Um, The first 12 deaths in St. Louis were all black people and we're seeing some similar concentrations with monkeypox. Um, Of course, COVID has affected a lot more people, but where the concentrations of serious sickness and death are. Are happening in these places so that i thought was useful to think of as as a viral underclass which does have a racial valence to it mm. but it also very much affects people who are considered disposable sometimes that's gay people with COVID, it was really elderly people uh, you know one in ten nursing home uh, people in nursing homes died at, at one point um, one in 12 in congregate care settings which are disabled people who might be quite young but live in these places where they're basically warehoused and taken out of society with little care for their health or well being. So, this is a viral underclass. Um, there are other people who could fall into it. But in the United States, in particular, unlike many other countries, unlike some very poor countries, some like similarly wealthy countries like the United Kingdom, in the United States, particularly becoming infected by a virus means that you are going to lose wealth and lose social standing. So in the UK, uh, you know, no matter how sick you get, you're not gonna leave with a hospital bill, most likely. And Mm -hmm. uh, there are, I mean, I'm not saying there is a viral underclass in the UK as well, but it doesn't operate in the same way where you're not destroyed economically by that experience, but you are in the United States. And we had moments of trying to take care of people with COVID, but many of them, if not all or most, are now gone. People without insurance are the most likely to get sick and die from COVID. They're not paid for anymore to get tested or treated. So they're likely not getting tested and not getting treated, getting very sick and possibly dying, having more infections in their communities. Um, but even if you know they, they sort of go over these, these barriers and seek out treatment, then they could leave with a $100,000 hospital bill, which is going to blow up their lives and their health for the rest of their lives, most likely. Um, And I'm seeing a a really troubling dynamic that is makes me so angry that this hasn't been addressed because it was at times with COVID with monkeypox that, you know, if you're, if you are diagnosed, then you need to quarantine for a minimum of 21 days. And I, and I saw, and I gave money to a friend, uh, posting a fundraiser for their friend who's a bartender who got it. Um, you know, and so, you know, we crowdsource and send them some money, but we can't do that for everyone. And there's no reason, like we just came out of, two and a half years of doing this around COVID, um, people who work shift jobs cannot go without working for 21 days without getting paid. And so that's one of the ways I think in the United States, the the experience of getting infected marks you, it can mark you socially, monkeypox, early AIDS and monkeypox, you know, mark you physically that yeah. has a social effect, um, but it really marks you economically, it puts you at risk for medical debt, which is one of, I think, the major reasons why people end up with with having to go to bankruptcy and with the kind of debt that creates really poor social outcomes, health outcomes.
2: In the book, you talk about how um, mutual aid became a concept that was more familiar to more Americans uh, during COVID, and that seems really to be true. And uh, that has roots, of course, what well, goes back very far, but, but the HIV epidemic was, was a, a good model.
1: Yeah, it was. Um, a lot of people learned in that experience how to take care of one another because they had already been abandoned in lots of ways. You know, and yeah. many, um, not that this has ended, but there, I think there was a more widespread experience for gay people just being banished from their families forever um and so the care networks that that people had cared on were just simply not available there were places in the world where that was quite difficult because you know hospitals might not let their lovers or their friends make decisions for them um here in new york that wasn't as much of a problem there but uh economics you know people had to help one another out um, and mutual aid is developed along all kinds of, uh, all kinds of ways uh, alongside the prison abolition movement. Um, it certainly had already expanded consciousness, I think a lot through Occupy Wall Street and people do it in various ways and not even calling that church communities, right. synagogues, mosques. You know, there are all kinds of ways that, that people take care of one another. But I think that there was uh, certainly in my lifetime the biggest recognition by the most people that the systems that are supposed to take care of us on paper are not going to do so. And we are going to be left for dead. And so folks have to band together with like-minded members of their community to do so. And a lot of people, I don't know if enjoy is the right word, but um, I think a lot of people really appreciated spending their time in this way. I mean, I I know lots of people who actually enjoyed going to get groceries for their elderly neighbors. And they would rather do that than, you know, even if they had a job where they're, they're mostly marketing shoes or something, <laughs> like <laughs> if they could do that for six hours a day and, you know, working from home and have two hours to like, you know, do something that they felt good about helping their neighbors, like they enjoyed that. <laughs> um, I think yeah, most Americans easy. would want a society where like, we have the things we need and we got glimpses of that. COVID. And it's being, it's happening again with monkeypox. But I I, I I think I'm going to write something about this eventually. I'm also aware that just people are, we're tapped out in ways that have nothing to do with a resentment towards the people asking for help, but are just perpetuating the same cycles. Like if, if we give, if we collect money for someone's exorbitant rent, the landlord's still getting the rent. And we all can't do that all the time for each other unless we find ways to to, unless we find ways to make less stuff happen to us.
2: Yeah. You were talking about um, nursing homes and care centers with Alice, and she believes that we can't just help the people inside those institutions
1: no um we have to do work inside and outside of them alice has a really great analytic as many people i know um in the disability community for understanding that the rights of labor and the environment are tied into disability that the nursing homes suck up all these resources they don't take good care of the people living in them they don't take good care of the people working in them um but they do let us And by us, I mean the broader society sort of warehouse people that Alice articulates well, that like many folks don't want to look at or acknowledge exists, they just want them out of, out of their way. Um, and one of the things I think that's been most helpful for me in writing the book and learning more about disability studies is the way that disability as a framework repeatedly draws upon interdependence, which is counter to the the primary American directive of independence—this idea that we're all sort beat of that individual,
2: cancer.
1: yeah, <laughs> beat it. <laughs> this, um, you know, that we're all like in our own individual silos. Uh, everyone has their own choice about their own destiny, and we don't have responsibilities to one another. Um, and so, I think interdependent. We, we, I think, we're often taught. Certainly, I was taught. In a media sense, that American independence is good, and that the opposite of that is like codependence, that you are, you know, you're just leeching off of someone else in this really unhealthy way. And I think that viruses have taught me, and people like Alice have taught me, that we are interdependent. We need things from other people, they need things from us. And negotiating kind of that care and community makes for better living.
2: Yeah, you talk about even um, the idea of, of course, my body, my choice being um, used by anti-vaxxers, but even the idea of my body, my choice for abortion is a little bit
1: flawed. Yeah, for me, it's like one of those dangerous things that I think I'm writing about. And I, I encountered this idea when I was in graduate school, because I had always... Um, I had, I had not much questioned the idea of my body, my choice, but as I learned about sort of what it means and the language level and both at a language level and a legal level to think about my body as a thing that I own, that is separate from me, um, was a concept that I was trying to work through that I found very challenging. And the idea of course, bodily ownership, even if we think we just own our own body, but the, the concept that the body is a thing that can be owned. Well, that ownership can be transferred, of course, as it was in shadow slavery. Um, and I have and turned in you know, the final, final, final edits, of course, before Dobbs came down. Um, but I have long thought that that the idea of only thinking about abortion or, or any health matter is simply a matter of choice, um, sidesteps the responsibilities we have to one another, and that democrats could have been saying for decades abortion is health care and everyone gets free health care so everyone can get an abortion and the democrats have done something quite often they rarely say the word i mean they've been forced to a little bit lately but the white house is still putting out statements where they don't use the word abortion like they're scared of it a critical mass if not the majority of even the democratic party is behind the hyde amendment saying that if you can't afford an abortion, that you certainly can't use government money, which has caused real problems. There were things that could have happened federally in this response to Dobbs that can't because of the Hyde Amendment. Um, And so of course I want people, I want trans people, I want people who want to have abortions to, to be able to do what they choose is best for them. But I also don't think that our framework can only revolve around Choice that we have to do certain material things to make those things possible, um, and that we have, you know, we. By, I think that's one of the, the things I've learned most about viruses. They show that we just we have responsibilities to another. We have to react to one another. And so, if someone's having a child, that shouldn't like everything about having the child shouldn't just be on that individual. They should be supported by their family and by the wider society, by people educating and taking care of the child. Um, And the same with abortion, that someone wants to have an abortion, it should not just be only on them, they should be supported by others. And so in those ways, I think a lot of the, there's been a lot of good kind of activist learning more broadly since the Dobbs decision about people understanding what they can do to support people getting abortion. And of course, that is a primary purpose of such activities. But every time we engage in politics in that way, it gives us opportunities for liberation and uh, improvement in other ways. Every time we're work, working on a project together and learning for one another and caring for one another, then we have the opportunities to um, move on from that. And Chase Stringo, who I write a, a little bit about yeah. in the book, who's a lawyer for the ACLU, wrote a really great thread the other day about sitting with the lost opportunities for having built coalitions between trans people and feminists um, that are sort of exploding now that had there been more mutual learning, feminists who are angry about the end of abortion could have learned a lot from people who've gone through the process of dealing with state surveillance and their health matters as trans people have. Um, And so I think that we always have to be thinking about, there's a problem to address, there are ways to address it. How can we learn in that process and how can that prepare us for the next thing and so i hope in some ways um i hope my book is helpful for people experiencing processing loss or experiences in our last couple of pandemics but i hope it's also helpful for them thinking about what we can learn from one another to work together to address the next one and of course the big the big health matter for all of society all of human society climate crisis
2: yeah and, and of course that ties in so deeply that um, the people most affected by climate crisis are also the most vulnerable uh, to viruses amongst other yeah. things. Um, I think the image I'm gonna remember the most now over of COVID if I'm looking back in many years is that video of the people on the plane who are told mid-flight that they don't have to wear masks anymore and the overall uh, joyous celebration of them ripping their masks off. And I was thinking, you know, I'm diabetic. I would have freaked out to be on that plane. (laughs) And um, I hope that there are people who are learning that we still have to take care of everyone else, even if we're okay
1: yeah it's it's really tough i have a good friend who's gay and um and he is not hiv positive but he lost many many he's of the age where he just buried many of his friends yeah um and he has had a liver transplant so he has he's immunocompromised and he was on one of those planes he was on one of those planes And it landed, like it landed, and the pilot did, and they all made this show of it. And you know, they took off their masks before they're at the gate, and it was just such a. I felt so angry on his behalf when I heard that, Um, because like he he was extremely cautious, and he would not have flown, had he known that. (laughs) Um, And, um, but it's also you know. I try to sit with exceptional media representations and realize, you know, they, they move in exceptional ways because they're exceptional. And so I'm sure a lot of that happened, but a lot of people also didn't take off their masks. And, and yeah, we do need leaders in places of authority to help people do the right thing at times. Until the last few weeks, you know, there's been polling about masking throughout the pandemic. And it's only in the last few weeks that it's tipped into minority um, approval for masking. It was at majority approval until a couple months ago. And even when these law decisions came out, you know, if you, if you and because people want to be told that they need to do this and they want other people to do it. So it has, you know, so it has the collective um, effect that it, that it should have um but we're missing a lot of leadership on this and i'm continuously angry at the biden administration for not even trying you know they they had their the transportation mandate thrown out by that judge they didn't appeal it they didn't ask for an emergency stay while they appealed it they just kind of said oh well um and they similarly don't seem to be fighting on the repeal of their directives around uh, Bostock, which said that you can't discriminate against LGBT people in the workplace and uh, education. Um, so they're not even trying at times, and that's really very frustrating.
2: Yeah, and I feel like media outlets too, like every time I get a um, New York Times newsletter, <laughs> I have to go on to Twitter and see what you say so I don't feel <laughs> like... <laughs> Um, like the pandemic is over and everybody's just ready to go out to dinner inside again.
1: For yeah. The um, times, I mean, I, I already turned in the, I'd already, by the time David Leonard was doing his worst, I had already turned in the final draft, but one of the things I'm trying to do in the book, even though I, I try to, it's very much a try to ground up people's stories, but I'm yeah. trying to help people understand these important theories that have been, um, only a couple that i've developed you know they've mostly been theories i've learned from other people that have been really helpful to my own thinking and learning that i find that my students find really helpful one of which is the concept of manufactured consent um which is a chomsky and herman sort of a marxist take in understanding media but understanding the ways that media is filtered before it gets to us and sort of the social vectors around it so the times is uh you know which is done of course amazing coverage as well but then they have these sort of uh, They called them, they now say they have four front pages, the paper, the website, the daily audio podcast, Mm -hmm. and the morning newsletter. And the latter two are really kind of like engagement, opinion, analysis engines that set the society, you know, the first of these, I think, was the political playbook in, 2008 or nine or something like that, these newsletters. And so Leonard's is the one that kind of sets the tone for the day amongst a certain class of people. And it and it basically turned at some point once Biden was in office of saying like, okay, those of us who've got vaccines are not gonna get that sick, which is not always true. Um, yeah. But um, of saying like, you know, you, you need to learn to live with this amount of death. And he put out one of those in a day where like almost 4,000 people died. Um, and it's really horrifying. But that's part of that's part of the manufacturer consent. The people who sort of serve the interests of the Times readers and uh, and advertisers are going to have a certain band of politics. I have to say though, I am surprised and dismayed that like I can't think I, I can count the journalists on one hand that have national platforms that are still banging this drum. And I can't think of a single national politician who is banging the drum about how 3,000 people will die this week of COVID.
2: And, and I do think so much is, is wrapped up in um, a phenomenon you call the myth of white immunity, um, which must have been in play um, on the video in the video of the flight that I saw yeah uh, amongst other amongst other things that 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 viruses only happen to quote unquote the dirty or the underclass
1: yeah it's um you know there is and I try not to minim well I I try not to minimize or overstate I try to try to get the right amount that there is an immunity that comes with whiteness there is a um there is an average social standing and an average economic reality that has an embodied advantage that that's one of the social determinants of health. However, like all forms of immunity, we're talking about socially or actually, you know, in terms of viral immunity, like it has limits. Um, and, and I think there's a myth that it's absolute. And I certainly learned that when I was reporting on, the Michael Johnson story, an HIV criminalization case, where I sort of learned, it, it took me time to understand it, but I began to learn that there were young people who thought they could have sex without any protection, and they were going to be protected by their race, and... Statistically, like your odds are better, but you're not protected. Like once you're vulnerable to viruses, you are vulnerable to viruses. If you have a mask on, you're better protected than if you don't have a mask on. And so you're right. Like there's sort of a, it's almost like a slow motion suicide that people put in motion when they do things like celebrate, we're going to take off our masks as if this thing can't happen to us when it is actually in fact happening to them. It's not happening as much to other people, but they're not willing to take stand to, um, stop more death happening to themselves and to people around them. And that's been one of the hardest things to contend with yeah. this pandemic.
2: Tell me a little bit about prose now, because, um... I do. I love the storytelling in the book, and I do love that you discuss a lot of theory, but in a way that's very inviting and doesn't make me feel dumb. <laughs> so. <laughs> so thank you for that. And tell me about um, the, the writing, the actual prose of the book.
1: Thanks so much. Yeah, I don't um, I have a couple of black uh, writer friends who I came up with in journalism and we talk about yeah we don't like get to talk about craft as much because there's always a disaster that we are you know responding to um so i appreciate the chance um i love the way you said that i hadn't thought of that but I, i i like to make ideas accessible and i believe that readers want big ideas um i certainly think a lot of the crafting of how i have come up as a professional writer and certainly part of this book was because I got to be reporting on the Black Lives Matter movement for mostly for The Guardian. Um, and it was this really interesting moment. And in the fall of 2014, I was starting graduate school and I was learning critical race theory and nationalism and you know, critical theory and these things at a time when because of Twitter, particularly black Twitter, there were these like movements of ideas happening between activists um, activists of all class status, you know, like disaffected young black men in Ferguson, Angela Davis, you know, tenured professor, um, as well as graduate students, professors, and people on the street. That's, I think part of the, one of the reasons why there's been this big backlash against gender theory and critical race theory is that like the discourse was becoming more democratized and people were learning how they were getting fucked. I don't know if I can curse on your podcast, but. Please do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, like um, in a way that like that was having cross-class solidarity, that you were like seeing these ideas in this language. I, I firmly believe that also like terms like woke that were having this class, cross-class usage among black people of different class status and education levels. One of the reasons why it gets so attacked. Um, so in the book, I really wanted to kind of use that, use that mix of talking about big ideas in ways that it could circulate um, in people who live in a viral underclass who thinks that describes their experience of people who think they might fall into it. Um, and people who have the power to who have some of the power to keep such a class from expanding. Um, I wanted it to be sort of a mix of reporting. I knew that I was going to draw on my reporting that I'd already completed. I started actually writing it in the first months of the pandemic, we sold it. I rewrote the proposal in like lockdown, like a week into the into the pandemic, because I sort of had a different book idea, um, and I knew that I wanted to build on the the research and writing i done on HIV criminalization, and so my agent and I, Tanya McKinnon, she's very very helpful in this, like came up with the idea of using a viral underclass as a way to have an analytic, but that would also give me a way to report on this pandemic. So a lot of the reporting I'm doing is drawing on my skill set as a journalist, and then also trying to tie it into theory. And I I always like to have some personal things in what I write, um, but this had more memoir elements than I was expecting. And um, this had more m- memoir elements than I was expecting. And part of that was because I just didn't know how, much, how many personal things were going to happen. I ended up writing about an editor friend of mine who died, one of my mentors during it. Um, But I try to write write a lot as if I was reporting with a more personal element than I generally do in my reporting. I write political essays and opinion columns, and then I also write feature things. Um, And this was sort of a combination of the feature things with the reflection in them as well. And I had a pretty good sense that I wanted to peel back the curtain. I don't like the term objectivity or neutrality in journals. And I wanted to like give people a peek into what I was thinking and experiencing. So they knew how to assess what I was writing. Um, And I wanted it to feel like they were going on a journey with me. My editors helped me understand that a lot too, because in some ways I I felt pretty confident about what I was charting out, but I didn't know where the pandemic was going to go. and so, as I went into these places, something extremely painful, of you know, of, of my editor dying and of helping plan his memorial service and being with other people as they're mourning, I wanted to give a sense that I don't—you're—you're you're just here with me. I'm figuring this out or trying to as I write, um, and I think we have to kind of give ourselves over to that kind of vulnerability um, when we write. And and also as a prose exercise, I wanted to—I I teach writing. Um, I wanted to think about how I use archives. This is extremely, extremely archive, like personal archive heavy book. I'm teaching a class this fall on writing about death. Um, I used in the chapter where I wrote about Olivier, I used seven years of our Facebook messages between each other. Um, And so I I tried to like think about how do I use kind of the best of social media, the best of electronic communication in a way that will have some permanence, because the vast majority other than when I wrote for the Village Voice, um, I would have stuff in the paper, like the vast majority of my work is online and it feels temporary. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of wanted to think, how can I get the, the best of what I've experienced online and to get that into a book in a way that, um, that I can have a document, but that I hope helps give a document of what this period of time has been for people in the future. And that I also hope gives people space to think about the experiences they've had in this pandemic.
2: Thank you so much. This book really um, was a bright spot in, in, a, in a rough couple of weeks. Um, before we go, please recommend some books for us.
1: So um, some books that, that I thought of while I was writing the book that were already written, were the prophets uh, by robert jones which is this really really beautiful novel about uh, love between people who are enslaved uh, i'm writing something about this now he didn't know this and we're friends so he didn't know this and and um but it actually takes place in a town where i spent some time and um vicksburg mississippi which has a fascinating history um heavy by kiese lehmann i also really loved as i was reading it i fin i read this right after i finished it but to me it's the best pandemic book it's called leave the world behind which you probably know um and even though he wrote it before it came out to me it is the talk about that video you were just mentioning of the people on the plane that book is the best example as a novel of americans just simply they cannot understand what's happening to them even as it's happening to them like when the boy's losing his teeth i want to give it all away and his mouth is full of blood and like he's saying what's happening what's i don't understand what's happening and i feel like that is such a sentiment that that just captures so well um and then just recently out this summer there there are all kinds of uh, books that are just out that i feel really proud and happy to share um publication year with, in some cases, publication day with, um, uh, Hugh Ryan's The Women's House of Detention is an absolutely exquisite book about uh, a women's jail in New York City and the history of it, why it's folly to repeat it. Uh, Linda Villarosa's, uh Under the Skin, which is a, a gorgeous book about overlaps with some of the geographies of mine. Um, we're doing some events together, um, okay. but it's really about the systemic ways that um, racism plays out uh, in healthcare, um, and sharing a pub date with me, Victor Ray's on critical race theory. Which I think, if you're looking for a book that will treat you intelligently uh, and not fake, not make you feel dumb, while also feeling like your thinking has been elevated and give you some tools to talk back on all this bullshit about critical race theory, it, it's it's exquisite. Victor's a first-rate scholar and really amazing writer. And I think this book is gonna be um, such a wonderful resource for people to be able to understand why people haven't only hear that is a a scary term, why are we hearing so much about critical race theory? Um, Yeah, so those would be my recommendations for this summer.
2: Thank you, Steven, so much. Um, I can't wait to read that. Um, The Viral Underclass uh, is wonderful, out now. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Maris. It's a pleasure talking with you. And you keep me sane, too, on Twitter, too.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.